So I showed it to the doctor, and well, she said it's smashing. In this episode of the Smashing Podcast, we ask how you can affect change to UX design in large organisations stuck in their ways. Vitaly Friedman talks to Marco Dagoinich to find out. But first, did you know that Smashing Magazine publishes brand new articles to the website throughout your working week? There's a lot to keep up with, but we're here to help. It's your weekly update. In Article versus Section, How to Choose the Right One, Olushui Olu Tamalin explores a mental model that helps you decide between the article and section elements when writing documents. Explore how grouping content affects accessibility and how you can make it all count for users. Noam Rosenthal writes about testable front end, the good, the bad and the flaky. Testing is not just about tools and processes, it's about architecture. In this article, Noam shares his experience on how to organise testing and find the right balance between front-end and subsystems and between different testing strategies. In fluid sizing instead of multiple media queries, Ruslan Jevich suggests that, thanks to the CSS clamp function, we don't need to use media queries to change the values of some CSS properties such as font size, padding, margin and so on. But... We do still need to use media queries for changing colours, borders, shadows and other CSS styles. If you like maths and CSS, you'll love this one. Sam Robbins gives us a guide to migration from jQuery to Next.js. jQuery has served developers well for many years. However, libraries like React and frameworks like Next.js are now bringing us more modern features to help with our code's performance and maintainability. This guide shows you how to migrate your jQuery site to React with Next.js, which is a significant undertaking, especially for big code bases. However, this migration allows you to use newer concepts such as data fetching at build time to help with our code's performance and maintainability. And in Rethinking Authentication UX, Vidley Friedman bets that nobody wakes up in the morning hoping to finally identify crosswalks and fire hydrants that day. Yet, every day we prompt users through hoops and loops to sign up and log in, to set a complex enough password or recover one, to find a way to restore access to locked accounts and logged out sessions. So, what can we do to improve the authentication user experience? Vidley helps us find out. And that is your weekly update. Find all these and more at smashingmagazine.com slash articles. For him, everything started with a passionate love for CSS and typography in early 2000s. He used to be a front-end developer and UX designer, then moving to the role of user experience director, working with plenty of clients such as Deutsche Telekom, SGS, Hwatsky Telekom, Font Bureau, L, National Geographic, and so many others. He also built a tool called Type Tester, which has got quite a momentum in 2000s and even beyond that, allowing designers and developers test their typography in the browser. Now, five years ago, he moved from Zagreb, Croatia, where he's originally from, to Sacramento, California, where he now is working as a director of user experience at Simsoft Solutions. 
So we know he's an expert in UX, but did you know that he has been an avid fan of Acapulco Beavers handball team from Zagreb <laughs> since the age of seven and remains one up until today? My smashing friends, please welcome Marco Dugonic. Hello, Marco. How are you doing today? <laughs> Great. I mean, smashing, I guess. <laughs> Excellent. That's wonderful to hear. It's uh, interesting because we have these conversations every now and again, talking about the meaning of life and so many other things. But, you know, one thing that's really excites me and i think it kind of deserves a bit of attention i have this incredible story of how you actually just fell in love with the web mm -hmm. many many years ago where you used to do something very very different and look at you now uh working on enterprise applications for a pretty fancy company uh can you tell us a bit of that backstory sure yeah it's uh it's it's a weird story in a way um but maybe yeah maybe it will give someone an idea uh, about how you can start with completely different expectations about your career and life and end up in in as you said in california and so my story really began when um i tried to build a website for for believe it or not my dogs my kennel because i used to breed dog uh dogs and um At that time, my full-time job was a fitness trainer. So as I was working with um, people who would have, um, you know, rehabilitation needs or any type of um, permanent or, or temporary disability, I also learned about um, how, you know, people who are, um, doesn't have, don't have the, the vision ability use the web by listening to the web pages and so um you know one let one thing led to another and i was thinking about hey i have this website for my dogs and you know can is this even accessible and so what do you do in early 2000s you you find a web forum where real web professionals you know reside and you start asking questions about how to improve your accessibility for your website And it was really just my hobby website. And, you know, it's, it's almost um, something that I've built out of, you know, my front end or front page software, uh, Microsoft front page. I don't know if you remember that one. Who doesn't, Marco, <laughs> who doesn't? And, and I don't know how, but I never used tables for layout, but I did. And this is probably the first time after almost 20 years Um, that I'm saying it, I didn't use tables, but I did use a bunch of frames. Um, it was a frame set that pretty much, uh, you know, I used to create the header and the sidebar and the footer. So I had four frames on that page. And of course, you know, it, it didn't validate and, and everything was like really ho horrible from technical perspective. But I was hoping that the web design community would help me. And, you know, I started researching and learned about CSS positioning. And that was the first thing that I fixed. And then I learned about the Internet Explorer because at the time I was using um, Mozilla. I don't know what was even before Firefox, maybe Phoenix or something like that. That was um, Netscape Navigator, of course. Netscape Navigator, yeah. I, I knew about it, but I think I think I onboard with, with the Mozilla type of browser. Um, right. But yeah, what happened is that at some point the the, the web forms really weren't enough for, for I guess my um, you know obsession of making things perfect. So I started reading uh, web standards um, from W3C website and I kind of read the specs because I thought 
hey, this is probably what every you know web professional does. And so so this is how I learned about accessibility and web standards and all the stuff. So that was 2002, 2003. And then, um, you know, one thing led to another. Again, I was participating in these web communities and eventually people from what today is called uh, human uh, design agency from Zagreb, they, um, we had a coffee, like, just like this one, right? And they said, hey, we'd like to be paid for what you know. And I was like, what are you talking about? I'm a fitness trainer. Uh, but they did convince me, and then um, I joined that incredible team. We we just had so much fun back in the day, um, and stayed f- with them for a couple of years. And then moved on to an in-house position, and and everything else is pretty pretty much standard. But I think that sort of moment where where you know when I realized, oh, I know something that somebody's willing to pay for, uh, that was incredible for me. Um, again. At that time, it was still almost like a hobby to me, but um, soon enough, it became um, a profession. Right. And then, of course, you also ended up having your own studio, um, which then eventually, after a couple of years, uh, and which then eventually, after a couple of years, moved you to this decision of uh, maybe it's a time to move to, or try to move to the US. How did that happen? Well, I think um, what, what has always f- been following me is that I didn't really have any general plan. I I knew what I wanted to do uh, day to day. I wanted to, I, I knew what I felt about projects and work and, and skills and all the stuff, but I didn't really have a general plan of moving from this company to another company, then to that company. Uh, it was really about maybe selecting good projects, good people to work with. And so when I had my studio, um, you know, we, we became pretty international. And, and you know that we also collaborated on a couple of projects in Europe. And for me, it was it was really for the past couple of years in Croatia, it was really just, you know, 100% international. And so one of our clients um, and, and through a good friend, Christina Podner, who also participated in some of the smashing um, activities, I think she gave a talk and, and had a couple of articles for you guys. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, she introduced me to Savita Faruqi, who uh, owns um, Synsoft Solutions with her husband. And, and it's a nice, small, family-run business. And looking at the projects that they had and still have, um, it just made sense to for me to move over here, and and so I accepted the the offer that I extended to me after after that kind of w- visit where I really didn't plan to get employed, but we were just discussing some of the collaboration and and maybe um, working on some projects together. But um, it ended up being me, you know, becoming a director of user experience here at Synsoft. Right. Uh, that's an interesting story and also kind of shows a journey that one can take from you know, one place to a very different place. Um, now, you've been all around UX for now 15, 20 years now. I don't even know who counts at this point anymore, at this point, <laughs> right? And of course, you've seen quite a lot of stuff happening in terms of just UX, I would say. We've been fighting as, you know, you, you could probably find thousands of articles standing, state, stating that we need to have a seat at the table. And it seems like now, at this point, 2022, we have a pretty solid seat at a table. Uh, Mm -hmm. Do you think that uh, we are in a place where we wanted to be 15 years ago? Is it still still something missing? Where do you see us as a community and just as an industry, I guess, um, in terms of the state of UX today? 
So I think the there's a, there's a couple of things right in there. It's it's uh, it's interesting and, and also complex topic, right? So I think we do have seat at the table. However, the horizon is now different because you know as you travel, you just discover other things are you know behind the horizon. And so you know one, once you climb that first peak, then you you reveal more peaks to climb. So I think this is where we are right now. And and a huge thing that nobody really talks about is that um, you know even even IT or digital um, as a whole has that had has had that problem in in the in the past of of the seat you know at the table. And so we just now join the crowd of of people who might have uh, a better access to decision-making, but it's still not at the level where um, we can really, you know, um, immediately influence uh, any decision, especially in, in big companies and enterprises. Obviously, this is where I work at. Um, startups are in, in, in kind of younger companies are uh, slightly different there, but Enterprises or anything massive like um, you know big insurance companies or big telecoms or or financial institutions or or the government the you know ninety percent of my clients are now the government. These organizations are you know has been around for um, for years and 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 hundreds of years even right so uh, so old ways and and um, things that led to success that they have right now. Are not necessarily something that you have to change, but but very often you can also change them by applying correct organizational change management principles. So I would say the kind of the the challenge that we have nowadays is just general organizational change management. That's a hot topic, and and again, it's not just the UX people. I think it's the technologists in general or anyone who who just have this um, new way of managing things, I would say digital marketers as well. So all of us, we have the seat at the table, but um, there's just this kind of huge job of, of, of driving and steering organization into, into the, whatever is, is next, whatever is the future. Right, that's interesting. Maybe we should dive into, into this a little bit more, in a little bit more detail. Just because, of course, we see, we read and see and hear a lot of articles around UX and many of them uh, very much focused on kind of traditional, I would say, uh, good old you know, startups, product, digital products, and so on and so forth. But at the same time, I find it quite difficult to even find um, case studies about enterprise UX. Um, so maybe you could actually share those insights about if you do have this situation where you might have a seat at the table, but you actually need to change the organization. And organizations of that size are usually very reluctant to those changes, and people don't like to change their habits quickly. So what would be then your process to kind of make it all a reality to establish a sort of a user-centric approach in a relatively tight and conservative and maybe even quite dated, let's say, environment? Um, well, yeah, sure. It's, uh, I wouldn't say necessarily that the, the organization is resist, you know, resistant to change or, or people are not willing to change. It's just, I would say the, the volume or the size of the organization is really your kind of biggest enemy. Because you can influence only so many people in your immediate circle in the organization. And then some organizations are lucky enough to have a big enough UX team or, 
or more broadly digital team you know that would also have a bunch of developers uh, solution architects uh, business analysts and, and you know any type of role that you can think of in IT um, so it's just it's just a matter of like how many people can you um, can you touch in within the organization with with the new principles how how many uh, people are actually in a UX um, type of project, user-centered service, uh, something like that. So um, the change doesn't happen in a way of, of um, you know, infecting people. You cannot just spread the UX type of virus to people and they'll all kind of get it. It, it requires a, a lot of effort. It requires, um, you know, custom-tailored approach to communication, uh, someone who has a desk job and is, you know, and, and departments that are understaffed for that matter, um, you know, they don't necessarily have enough bandwidth or capacity. And, and it has nothing to do with personal preference or of, of, you know, individual person, but just the organizational structure is such that you don't have access maybe to, to everyone that you would like to. And, and of course, you know, it would be you know, requiring a lot of a lot of time uh, out of the the regular day-to-day -day desk job for people to even get educated so i think the the biggest enemy is the size of the organization so you have to kind of strategically pick and choose your champions within the organization uh, people who whoever shows up you know on your sort of like open office um, um or or you know office hours whatever you call it um, um meeting um, that's a good champion. Even even the, if they have low maturity in UX, you know these are people who have the intent to change something. And so, strategically picking and choosing people, and then you know helping them become almost like a mentor within the organization to to the people around them. And maybe you'll have that department embracing more of a kind of iterative approach to understanding end customers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think this is sort of the way to go. Mm -hmm. um, but again. I don't think people should be discouraged with that because even 1% improve in the business process or in conversions or in optimization is, you, you know, literally you and I work with web performance and conversions and e-commerce and all the stuff and 1% can be a huge yeah, improvement. Of course, of course. Uh, I'm wondering though, um, just what your way of dealing with situation is when you have people in front of you, maybe high up the ladder in senior management, uh, who just have very different view on things, who very strongly look, of course, at their data and their KPIs, at their business metrics, and you know, try to move them. And how would you then, in, in a case where you again have to work with a company that might not have a user-centric approach at all, and maybe don't think as about the customer experience as much as they think about the financial benefit by the end of the year. How would you then argue in those kind of environments about the role of UX or the, the importance of UX or the important of, importance of customer experience? Well, I think the, the best way to sell something is to show them, um, you know, with a live example, with a practical example. And, and, you also know that you know whenever we 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 would come to an organization and say hey you know let's see what's what's the problem there and and you and I work with a major you know German retailer a couple of years back and they were saying hey mobile is not performing really well desktop is much better and then we realized that they you know the average visit to a mobile e-commerce solution that they had 
was about like 50 euros or something like that. <laughs> and, and so, um, you know, once you kind of start shaving off these numbers and say, you know, this website is now faster or this, this software will shorten the time from, you know, idea to conversion, just I think performance is such an easy to use tool to convince people to invest into it that it's it's just unbelievable because you can measure the before and after and this is something that my team at Synsoft always does we always do the the, the you know baseline measurement uh, whether that's the conversion rates satisfaction whatever you know you name it you know seconds to load etc cetera, etc cetera. and then we we test and retest and retest and retest and then you have hard facts that you can actually tie back to dollar value and this is how you convince people that in, this was a good investment. And, and again, you know, just starting small on a, on a kind of almost like when you work with a new chemical that's dangerous, right? On your car or whatever, they say, hey, try somewhere where, where you know, it, it won't mess anything up, like in a corner that nobody sees. And so we can also pick a pilot, you know, project, really small case study, you know, prove that it works and then, you know, scale it up to something larger. Would you say that it's important to have a buy-in at this point? Or would you say, just go ahead, experiment, build a little prototype, maybe even, you know, a little bit in your spare time, uh, just to convince that this is working? Or do you think that a commitment from management and a green light and approval is critical here? So I would say that and, and again, this is my experience. I, I don't necessarily mean, I don't necessarily think this is, you know, something that happens in every organization. But for me, whatever worked, you know, whenever I was proactive and, and more on the side of like, hey, let me do something in my spare time or let me finish the, the, the kind of the main task earlier so that I can actually work on the fun stuff. Um, also, you know, signaling to the management that you are proactive, that you're, you know, self-driven, that you're self-motivated, that you're not waiting for someone to approve, that you're not waiting to be served or approved or, or you know, given the space. So um, I think management definitely likes people who are who are just thinking that way. And so you basically have two benefits. You don't have to ask anyone for permission. Um, you know, you, you, can, you can figure out what is the scope and, and what is the space available that you have and just decide to do it. And then if it doesn't work, you're not even embarrassed. Nobody needs to know. But if it works out, if it's a nice prototype, if it's a nice concept, you can definitely, you know, present it to the upper management. And then again, you get double credit. You, you create something fun, but you also show that you care and that you are proactive and, and self-driven and all these qualities that everybody ever you know, always write on the, on the, um, you know, job posts, uh, I guess. Are you ready for the future of digital storytelling? This episode of the Smashing Podcast is sponsored by Storyblock, the number one rated CMS for 2022 on G2. The recent release of Storyblock V2 is shaping the future of digital storytelling and empowering businesses to create and scale better content experiences across all digital channels. Storyblock empowers developers to build anything, integrate with everything, and publish everywhere with its headless CMS architecture. Storyblock enables content teams to create and manage content intuitively and independently with visual editing, custom collaboration workflows, and a world-class digital asset manager. You can enhance your audience's experiences with best-in-breed performance, omni-channel storytelling, and personalization. If you're wondering whether Storyblock fits your company size and scaling goals, the answer is yes. Storyblock is built to serve all company sizes, 
from solo developers to small and medium enterprise SMEs, to being the number one choice for the world's leading enterprises. Marco Polo built their e-commerce prototype in just two days using Storyblock. Join the 80,000 users, including Adidas, Renault, and T-Mobile, who leverage Storyblock to create the best digital experiences. Create your free Storyblock account today by visiting www.storyblock.com. That's S-T-O-R-Y-B-L-O-K.com. Storyblock. Our storytelling scales. Right. Well, you did mention scope, and of course, it's a wonderful keyword for me, um, because of course, <laughs> I can almost hear the voices in the back asking about how to deal with scope creep. I mean, you you are working with very different organizations, and uh, well of really big size and eventually i'm sure there will be situations where late changes come in poor specifications are in there communication issues delays and all of that uh, so what would be your way to prevent things like this from happening where you're kind of missing deadline because of the scope creep or poor estimates uh, what's kind of your process in there to make sure that we don't get in trouble uh, for delays and you know maybe underestimating the effort needed yeah, that's 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 really a great topic. I think um, there's there are two things in there, right? So um, definitely, if if we underestimate, it's completely on us, and there's you know no no, yeah, that's that's very clear. It's it's on us. Uh, we should have you know um, we should have had our due diligence before you know in the discovery process in the discovery stage of the project. When we were estimating, um, you know, but it, th these things happen, I guess, in the beginning for everyone until you sort of, uh, you know, have enough experience to to move from one page contract into 50 page contract. And, and you know, my friend, um, Ivo Lukac from from NetGen from Croatia, he said once, you know, once to me, hey, we started with like one page for a contract. Now we have 70 pages or something like that. So you know, as you are more experienced, you just put more things in the contract and, and you, I guess, put more things into researching and estimating and you probably track your hours and you know, you know, how much time for each feature is required, et cetera, et cetera. So like, as you, as you grow more mature in, in the field, you, there's, there's less surprise when it, when it comes to estimates, right? Now, the second topic, which is the scope creep, uh, usually in enterprise organizations, they already have this type of um, sort of, they mitigate that with, again, uh, another contractual clauses. Um, maybe something that you can communicate early on is is um, an anticipated uh, effort budget. So that might be 10 or 20% of, of budgets that's allocated to the project that we don't have to spend, but this is sort of like our contingency plan. Um, and then another thing uh, that's very, very useful, and, and this is what my um, director of project management always enforces, is, is regular meetings. Every week we have at least uh, weekly meetings, if not daily stand-ups, um, with, the, with the project management on the client side. And, and we have really detailed status report that we carry over week after week after week, and we update it and we share it with everyone. And we are not really afraid to raise any risks. So um, when, whenever we see that there's a you know, delay in uh, reviewing and providing feedback, we will put that into status report, change the green light to yellow light, 
and just say to everyone, hey, we think that this is something that can, you know, get out of control. Yeah, so that's a very interesting point for me as well, because um, I was working with a company where this turned out to be quite a helper. So kind of really having a more clear overview, I guess, of what our expectations are, what the process is going to be, when we expect some feedback and uh, what kind of feedback we expect as well. And uh, one thing that was really critical and useful at this point was to actually explain to clients that, you know, late changes are expensive. You know, late changes are difficult to implement um, and they are expensive because, you know, if you're coming from a very different industry and you're expecting a product to be delivered, you might not know just how expensive, how difficult it is to actually make those changes later on because you don't have this technical knowledge necessarily, right? So explaining this early on, having this clear communication channel is indeed, I think, uh, mm. quite useful in many ways, actually. Um, from my end, I think and one thing I actually definitely wanted to cover Today's because this is something that comes up quite a bit and most recently is you know you've been again in this industry for quite some time and you've been in you know kind of you had your own head where you had your own agency um, and now you are working for a company what do you think especially for people who might be having just a few years of experience in UX you know looking back what do you think would be the right way to just guarantee personal growth in a company, negotiate salary, get more ownership, you know, all those things. How would you say, what would you recommend maybe to people listening to it today if they want to maybe improve their salary, maybe grow uh, over time, maybe take more leadership position? Uh, what skills would be required and what would be the right strategy to get where you want to be? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And um, so... Maybe from from a manager position now I can I can talk about people that I um, that I had in my teams right and, and and what qualifies a a successful UX designer or you know professional in general is you know it's it's always I guess people who are able to manage up um, are more successful managing up meaning that. You know, understanding that your supervisor or, or whoever you report to also have has their life and their problems and their different different tasks, right? And just understanding your your overall environment, it's um, you know leading leading peer to peer. So um, the um, understanding that if you're in UX, there's another person at the same sort of level in organization in front end or or back end or marketing or project management so just like being aware who's above you know below uh, on the side from you and, and and just understanding that these are also people right and then what can you do to to really kind of uh, move everyone together forward and so this is kind of the the I guess the attitude, right? Like being proactive, something that we talked about um, uh, a few minutes ago. Just not asking for permission, you know, because um, it's 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 not true that you need weeks and weeks to create a concept. Maybe you can just sketch something and say, "Hey, you know, you wake up one morning, and you don't necessarily have to open up your your company laptop or anything like that, but like just you know, put it on a post-it, and when it's when it's office time." Uh, you just can say, "Hey, I have this idea. Let's do this, right?" And that that really cost you nothing. I mean, you, you had that idea anyway, but you're building up your your muscle of like generating, communicating, and suggesting. And and of course, it 
it goes without saying, if you hear crickets every time you have an idea in your company, you should just change the company, right? Um, but um, if, you, if you have good environment and receptive environment where you can voice your ideas, that's, that's a great place to be. And so what happened is that, you know, once you build up your credit and you look like someone who cares, not necessarily about the company, and, and you know, I don't want to fool myself thinking that people want to stay here forever, but, um, but like caring about the quality of work, caring about your teammates, you know, caring about leaving some kind of impact, you know, after you leave. And, and there, there's another topic that we can also talk about, like, what do you do when you decide to leave the company? So are you that type of person who, who thinks about these moments? And so once you have that, then, you know, salary negotiations are just kind of straightforward because you already opened up the communications uh, channels and then you can just, you know, come and sit and say, hey, you know, what about the raise? And then we can talk about that. But if, you know, your communication is completely blocked and you're just kind of, you're just doing whatever you're told and you're, you know, sort of like, you know, checking off the, the tickets, um, then that conversation about the salary is just difficult because you didn't really create an environment where you have this dialogue anyway in the first place. So I think practicing talking to your boss, you know, good times or bad times and just, you know, not necessarily sharing everything that, that's happening in your life, but just having this kind of more proactive, I guess, um, you know, communication um, when nothing's really happening, you can just say, drop by and say, hey, this is what I'm working on. It's nothing special, but here it is. And then maybe having this regular cadence. And if you don't have one-on-ones, and by the way, which you know is something that you should have with your boss, because that kind of cadence on one-on-ones really allows you the space at some point to say, hey, I would like to work on something else, or I would like to have a better impact, or I would like to have a better salary, or hey, I'm actually looking for a new job. Can you, you know, can you support me while I'm, you know, looking for something else? And, and just being fair, I guess, to the, to the people that you're working with. Yeah. Um, so that would be kind of my advice about, um, you know, um, negoci- negotiating salary and, and these types of things. Yeah, I think that many people are struggling with um, kind of finding themselves in companies where there is just no culture for this kind of uh, feedback. I mean, in some good companies, you will likely have maybe 360-degree feedback or 360-view feedback, whatever it is called. Um, where you mm-hmm. kind of get feedback from everyone and then you would have a dedicated kind of time to bring up any issues with your manager uh, once every three months, four months, two months, six months, I don't know. But uh, this is probably an important part to have or an important asset, I guess, to have at least. Uh, I think that many people just, uh, I'm afraid maybe a little bit to uh, ask these questions, to bring this up because they think that it might create a wrong attitude around them and that they're there in, their, in the company for the money alone. But, I mean, looking at the inflation rates happening right now around the world, <laughs> it's probably important to have that conversation uh, later or earlier, right? Um, yeah, definitely. So maybe also kind of building up on top of that, um, there are quite a few conversations happening in Europe, at least around salaries. And of course, everybody's looking at salaries in San Francisco, thinking about, wow, those salaries, this is incredible compared to you know the pay you get in Europe, even if you're living in London or in Berlin. Um, it's just much, much, much higher in San Francisco. You happen to be in Sacramento, uh, in California, and you happen to have moved from Croatia to the US. Um, um, and kind of share the story about how you did that. So now being there, do you feel, can you tell us maybe a little bit more about kind of the 
how how different everything is for you so do you feel like uh, the the culture the way companies are run the um the way people are working together that it's kind of uh influenced you in some way surprised you in some way disappoint you in some way what was your experience overall in these five years Yeah, that's a good question. I think um, looking back, what really was new for me is how um, people over here are really focused, organizations, not necessarily individuals, really focused on processes and repeatability of the process. Um, so, you know, if you have certain steps and, and we can talk about process, there's this, you know, in design, we have double diamond or triple I or five Ds or design sprint or design thinking. And, and, and the reason for all of that, which is not very common in Europe, in Europe, we have a problem and solution. These are two steps that we have in Europe or have had in Europe. Um, but here it has to be detailed a little more with like applicable tools and, and sort of like a decision-making diagram, right? So this is, this is different over here. Um, when it comes to San Francisco or, or, or Sacramento, I think in Sacramento, what happens is that we have government here. So... I really, I'm not in a position to compare, you know, our environment in the projects um, to maybe Bay Area where there's a lot of, um, you know, just private companies and startups. And, and, and the, the, there's, there's a stark difference even here, you know, two hour drive from, from San Francisco. So I, I would even... I would even think, and this is completely my personal opinion, that Sacramento is closer to, to kind of the rest of the U.S. than to the San Francisco compared to Europe. Um, but another thing that's really different here is that um, the the whole communication piece is um, is just much more intentional because a lot of people are landing to California specifically from all over the world, right? And And then you have... A mix of cultures and this is something that i definitely didn't think about when i was working in europe however you know internationally but still europe um which is super tiny by the way as a, as a piece of land right um and then um we didn't have this so many differences um in a sense of um just different cultural backgrounds different educational backgrounds how you know people have just different school systems you know in the first place and so all of these people come over here they're talented they have certain talents otherwise they couldn't make it here um but then you have these different communication styles and and you have cultures that are just very generally speaking you know far eastern countries um have have high context conversations and then you you know you go more to the west you have low context which means that you have to always sort of reiterate what was the last conversation while in some cultures it's kind of implied everybody knows what we were talking about in the last meeting so Um, just these types of, I guess, communications um, skills that that we develop now um, are 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 really kind of that was like really eye opening. I think, especially Croatia, for that matter, um, compared to California, is like super monocultural. It's 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 just unbelievably, you know, um, that contrast is just like super visible for for me now, kind of moving. Uh, from one to another right so having moved to the u.s now do you feel like at any point you could consider moving back i think so yeah that's that's not off the table um i think the what we like here you know me and my family and, and this was really kind of a, a more collective move not just necessarily for for projects or work 
um, is is you know access to nature here is just incredible. The the way you can consume nature in in California specifically is just unbelievable. It's 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 just geared towards families and um, over here everybody's outside all the time, which which is our family style anyway. So. These are some of the, the the fun things over here, right? The the good thing about Europe is that everybody er, everything is very close. Um, you know, the furthest away is I don't know Spain from Croatia, which is two three hour uh, airplane flight. Um, you know, and 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 of course I can fly to LA to vi- vi- visit Disneyland or something like that, but it's 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 a drag to uh, to even think about like the distances over here. Um, so. So these are some some of the dif- differences that that we notice. But again, I wouldn't say it's different or better. It's 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 um, it's just I guess down to every person's prefer- personal preferences. Right. Okay. Well, now if you actually could recommend something to yourself when you were breeding dogs back, like what 20, 25 fish, twenty two years ago, uh, when you were just starting out with UX and all of that, or, well, front end and all of that, what would you recommend to yourself? I would just um i guess i would i would enjoy it more i would enjoy the ride more um i i i was lucky enough to meet really really great people along the way i mean such as yourself you know included oh that's very kind of you yeah yeah but also co-workers and other speakers and and just professionals i think at the at certain points i could have enjoyed it more i guess just being more relaxed and, and having more faith in the future that things will work out the the way they actually eventually did so um i, I guess just kind of more patience okay that sounds good so we've been learning about ux in this episode of smashing podcast so what have you been learning about lately marco any podcasts books tv shows anything that uh, uh drew your attention well, yeah, that's that's a good point, and 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 you know me, I'm all over the place, right? So I think you surely are, lately, Marco. You definitely are. <laughs> yeah, lately, um, I'm I'm really into mental health and just on on all levels, right? So personal level, family level, um, organizational level, just thinking about all the consequences of the COVID and 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 just kind of remote versus in person. This is this is something that I'm really thinking about not necessarily as as um as something that we have to deal with right now but what are you know what will be the outcomes in the years to come so just kind of getting ready for that i guess all right well i'm very much excited to actually meet you in person after all these years in four days we're going to meet in san francisco for smashing Comp san francisco this is going to be very exciting uh oh quality time family quality time isn't it yeah yeah it's going to be smashing oh that's kind if you dear listener would like to hear more from marco you can find him on twitter where he is at marco Dugonic, and you can also check on type tester which is still kicking still around on typetester.org well thanks so much for joining us today marco do you have any parting words of wisdom that will be staying with people listening to this uh, i don't know decades from now no, yeah. Thank you for having me. This is this is uh, so exciting, and and I think um, the best advice that I can have is keep reading Smashing Magazine. This is Smashing, and that was our podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and if you liked it, please share it with your friends. Find us on the web at smashingmagazine.com, on Twitter at Smashing Mag, Smashing Magazine on Facebook or in the supermarket by the cat food.